Well, let's take our Bibles and turn together to Isaiah chapter 53. If there is, if you can say there is a more precious part of the Bible than another part, then Isaiah certainly would qualify, Isaiah 53 would qualify as being one of those sections of the Bible that has become so precious to the believer. Certainly, if you read the New Testament, you find that over and over again, New Testament writers are reflecting back on the prophecy of Isaiah, and in particular, on the prophecy that we are studying and that we know familiarly as Isaiah 53. In fact, there is no better commentary on the life and work of Jesus Christ than that written 700 plus years before he was born and contained in this section of Scripture. Isn't that remarkable? Because in this section of Scripture, which really begins in chapter 52, verse 13, the chapter division was placed in the wrong place. Uh, They should go to the bottom of the class, the people that did the chapter divisions. Uh, because it really begins 52.13. There are five stanzas in the Hebrew. They begin there in verse 13 of 52. First stanza, verse 13, 14, 15. Begins there. It ends in the verses we read, 11, 12, uh, 10, 11, 12 of chapter 53. They're the first and last stanzas. And in those stanzas, we hear the voice of God himself speaking. He begins... Behold, my servant. The servant is the subject, and the speaker is the Lord God of Israel. And at the beginning and the end of the poem, what we have is a statement of the victory and the success and the exaltation of this individual, this figure called the servant. At the heart of the poem... In verses 4, 5, and 6, we have the theological core that tells us what it is that the servant's life represents, what kind of work he has come to do. And we find there that he has come to do a place-taking, sin-bearing, punishment-enduring work. That's his work. He comes to take our place to bear our sin, that is to take responsibility for our sin, and then to endure the penalty and the punishment due to our sin. That's the theological core. And we come this morning to look at the very last stanza of all, these last three verses which constitute a stanza in the Hebrew. And in these verses, we hear the voice of God again, as we will see. We also have underlined yet again, as it was at the beginning, that this servant of God is going to achieve something that has eternal and infinite possibilities. So here's the flow then. Again, for those of you who are not used to the thing, you haven't been coming regularly, he begins with the first stanza, chapter 52, 13. By identifying the Lord's servant with the Lord himself. There's language used there that is used three other times in the book of Isaiah, but is only ever in all those other places, in chapter 6 and chapter 33 and chapter 57, 
used of the Lord God of Israel himself. That language is used of this figure, the servant. He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. He shares the identity of the God of Israel himself. That is a remarkable feature. How that happens and how that works out will not become clear to us until the incarnation of the Word made flesh that we read about in John's Gospel, chapter 1. But there it is, there it is in the germ. This servant is to be identified with the Lord God of Israel himself. And no sooner is he introduced in those terms than everything goes wrong. In fact, things go so far wrong that you end up with him dead and buried. And that's where we ended up last week when we looked at that fourth stanza. Dead and buried. What has gone wrong? How can you get from where it begins to that point? Where it begins, if I can quote from Alan Groves, Yahweh's own lips declare that the servant is to be identified with Yahweh himself. How do you get from that to him dead and buried? That's an amazing turnaround. In fact, if you look at verse 15 of chapter 52, you'll find there's a reference there to a mystery. Things that people hadn't seen or understood. Uh, There will be a day when they will see and understand, but those things were not seen and understood. What was not seen and understood? How it was that when God's Messiah came, he would be disbelieved by his own people, he'd be rejected by his own people, and that he'd become a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, how do you get from this man of sorrows And this grief-stricken man to the servant of God who will ultimately sit on the right hand of God on his throne. Well, when we come to this last summary statement, this last stanza, verse 10, we're given the answer. We find him dead and buried. Here is now what we learn about the death of the servant. First of all, the death of the servant was no accident. It was no accident. The previous stanza ends with a grave of an, the grave and the death of an innocent man of whom you could not find anything to say against him. Now that poses a problem for any inquiring mind, any sensitive nature. How could an innocent man suffer The miscarriage of justice that's described in verse 8. How could such a man suffer the kind of things that are described in verse 3? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How could such an innocent man suffer what's described in verse 14 of chapter 52? uh, His appearance marred beyond human semblance. Is this just another, rand- another example of the randomness and meaninglessness of human life? When bad things happen to good people, we're invariably shaken. There are often no good answers. Sometimes there is no answer at all. 
But here the answer is the worst of all possible answers. Look at verse 10. Dead, buried. Yet it was the will of the Lord, Yahweh, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It's as if Isaiah draws back the curtain to the secrets contained in the mind and will and pleasure of the God of Israel, the God of the universe, the only ruler and creator of the universe. And it's saying to us, the sufferings of this servant were no accident. They were not the result of circumstance or chance. Here is the shocking reality. They were the will of God. God caused them to happen. If you come to one of the pastors or elders of this church and you are going through a period of misfortune and you come to them and you ask them, what have I done wrong that this misfortune has befallen me? Those men would be in dereliction of their duty if they helped you to find some fault or sin in your past or your background that led to the misfortune that you're experiencing now directly. They would rather reassure you that these are the things to which flesh is heir to. These are part of our common human burden. But when it comes to this man's misfortune, the Bible does what no pastor, elder, or counselor here would dare to do. It traces it directly to the will of God. It was the will of God. Indeed, it was the pleasure of God to do this, to crush him and put him to grief. Behind it is the Lord God's purpose, determination, and will to crush the serpent, the, the, the servant. Back in verse 6, we were told that the Lord laid our iniquity on this servant. When it says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and sorrows and grief are the product of sin, we are told that when he went to bear that sorrow and grief, it was not his, it was ours. It was the product of our sin that he carried as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Everything he did, he did as our place taker, as our sin bearer, as our punishment endurer, he took our place. Look what it says here. That it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. The suffering and grief here go beyond the physical sufferings that have been described earlier in this chapter. They go beyond the physical pain that has emerged from the text. This is driving us to that point where physical and spiritual sufferings merge. It is his soul that is crushed. It is in his spirit that it is the will of God to crush him and to bruise him and to bring him, to put him to grief. The whole of the being and the personality of this figure is under the weight 
the crushing weight of the pressure of the wrath of God against sin. And there is no mitigation of the agony. There is no relief for the suffering. He bears it all and his soul carries it all. In his sermon on the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter explains to the crowds in Jerusalem why it was that the now resurrected Jesus had to suffer. And he puts it like this. It was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The servant's sufferings were no accident. Secondly, the servant's sufferings were not random. They were not random. There there is a switch of speaker in the vision that Isaiah relates, and this speaker is talking to God himself about what he wants to come out of, what he, God, wants to come out of the servant's suffering. It turns out to be something of such incredible worth and value when his soul makes an offering for guilt. That is a sin offering or an offering for sin. It was the Lord's good pleasure that he suffer as an offering, as an offering, as a sacrifice. We're being pointed to the Old Testament, of course. We're being pointed to the offerings that you read about from chapter 5 to 7 of the book of Leviticus. To those sins, uh, those, those offerings rather, that address the fundamental problem of the human heart that is not only my involuntary sins, the things I do without realizing it, but my voluntary sins, my conscious sins, the sins that are my decision, those are covered by these sacrifices. And when these sacrifices were made, these sin offerings were made, they covered three areas. First of all, they propitiated, that is, they turned away the judgment, the wrath, the anger of God from the offender. Secondly, they, they expiated or cleansed or forgave the offender's debt. But more than that, they compensated. They made restitution for the state of indebtedness that the offender had incurred. In Scotland, you know, we, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we tend to pray Matthew's version. <clears throat> and in England, they pray the other version in one of the other Gospels because the English do not like to pray, forgive us our debts. And they think that the Scots do that because the Scots are preoccupied with money. I don't know where they got that idea. They're always accusing the Scots of being mean with their money. In my experience, the English are mean with their money as well. Uh, But indebtedness is a good description. Matthew uses that to describe the fact that sin is an indebtedness. It's something we owe to God. We owe for our sins, put us in a state of indebtedness. And what we owe, we cannot repay. What we owe to God, we don't have the resources to pay back. 
And when Jesus comes into the world and when he dies for us, he offers up what the Book of Common Prayer describes as, quote, a full and sufficient sacrifice for us. He offers up what we need. Now we have seen from the previous stanza that the servant was utterly and voluntarily willing to lay down his life for his people. That's how it begins in verse 7. He was oppressed and he humbled himself to be afflicted. Instead of defending himself, he did not open his mouth. Instead of resisting arrest, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He put himself in harm's way. He volunteered. He was voluntary in his will. So what we have just read is that the servant goes into this business and he goes into it willingly, voluntarily. He goes in gladly for our sakes. So the will of the servant to humble himself and suffer in our place, and the will of the Father to punish the servant in our place. The two wills of the Father and the Son conjoined together perfectly here. They converge together in what the Son does as the servant going to the cross to die for his people. And his death is a guilt offering. It compensates for human sin by setting us free from the debt of guilt that we have before God. What does it do? Well, it turns away the wrath of the judge. The judge is no longer the accuser. He is no longer the plaintiff in the case of Yahweh versus you. Not only that, it deals with your indebtedness. It pays what you owe. But it does more than that, as we shall see in a moment. And what the apostle, what the apostle, what the prophet, he could be an apostle because he's writing about what's going to come 700 years plus in the future. What he says about what the servant is doing is this, he is dying for our sins. The apostle Paul picks that up and says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Which scriptures? Well, this one, among many others. Do you notice he clarifies the servant did not suffer for his own sins, but for our sins? Verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many. Now this is the mystery. The mystery is that when the servant of God comes, that he will not topple all the rulers of this world and establish a worldwide kingdom by force, but rather he will do something unimaginably humiliating, unimaginably weak, unimaginable in its suffering. He will do that in our place, bearing our sins. And so right at the very heart of this passage is the idea of the servant willingly, with God's blessing, taking my place, bearing my sin, enduring the penalty due to me for my transgression. Now, you can't avoid that. You can't avoid the fact that Jesus is a vicarious Savior. That is a, a Latin word, comes from the word vicar, which means instead of, in place of, the substitute for. There was, a, there was in Church of England or an Episcopal minister explaining to a congregation 
that he was a vicar, and he was explaining what a vicar is. A vicar is there who's in place of the main man, as it were. And there was a broken pane of glass, and he points to the broken pane of glass, and he says, you see that broken pane? You see how they put a bit of plastic over it? He says, that's what a vicar is. It's the bit of plastic. And as he's shaking hands at the door, there's one lady who comes to him, and she shakes his hand, and she says, vicar, you're no substitute. You are a real pain. So, that's the kind of image, though. That's the kind of... <laughs> and you, I'll give you five minutes to get over that one, and we'll move on. That's what the word vicarious means. It's a theological term. Didn't you get that in your head? It means in place of, the substitute for. Professor Brevard Childs of Yale University writes that the vicarious role of the servant lies at the very heart of the prophetic message, and its removal, that is the removal of the idea of vicarious... In my place, atonement, its removal can only result in losing the exegetical key that unlocks the awesome mystery of these chapters. It is all about Christ in my place. That's at the very heart of it. His death was not random. It was purposeful. It was targeted at the removing and forgiving of sins on the basis of his sacrifice in my place, in my room, and in my stead. And I want you to notice now, as you see these two stanzas together, it was the Son's will to voluntarily humble himself to that, but it was the Father's pleasure to cause him pain. You see, when I was growing up, we used to sing, when I was a little boy, a chorus, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that was true, of course. But you could also sing, beloved, from this passage, the Father loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Why did the Father... Why did the father crush his son in the vice of his wrath? Not because for even one nanosecond did the father for one nanosecond have anger against his own son. I want to tell you that on that cross, the father loved his son more than he'd ever loved his son. He never loved his son more than when his son was in your place, bearing your sin, enduring your punishment. And the Apostle Paul can say about the cross, God the Father demonstrates his love for us in this, that Christ died for sinful people. Isn't that amazing? We often call the cross the demonstration of Jesus' love. The Bible calls the cross the demonstration of the Father's love. These are the lengths to which the Father would go. Abraham, you remember, told to take his son Isaac, whom he loved, and to sacrifice him. Doesn't have to do that in the end, but the God who spared Isaac... Abraham's son did not spare his own son, but delivered him up freely for us all. What a Savior. What a God who loves us to such 
a degree. And he was not punishing his son in some cosmic form of child abuse. The son goes gladly, willingly to the cross for his people. The servant's death is not an accident. The servant's death is not random. And thirdly, the servant's death is not final. Look at this. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. These are all future. These are pointing beyond his death. Beyond his death, he will see his offspring. That is, he will see his seed. Those two, that word is used in the Hebrew Scriptures. In Genesis chapter 3.15, the seed of the woman. In Genesis chapter 12, the, the, the promise to Abraham of a seed of offspring. And so pointing beyond death, we're told that this servant beyond his death will see the people who will be impacted by his death, his people, his children. He will see these people. They will be brought to him. If you didn't get that, it's underlined, he shall prolong his days. He's dead, but he will prolong his days. There'll be no end to his days. And if you don't get the point of that, there's a third thing. In the future, beyond his death, the will of the Lord shall prosper at his hand. It is still prospering at his hand. As he gathers a people to the Father, it will prosper in his hand as he reigns until he has put all his enemies under his feet. All of that is future. In other words, each clause is underlining the need for resurrection and everlasting life for the servant. Each clause emphasizes resurrection and everlasting life. The servant's death is not final. Then fourthly, the servant's death is no disappointment. No disappointment to the Father. Verse 11 begins with the Father speaking. The one who had spoken at the beginning is speaking now again. Out of the anguish of his soul. We've, we've sensed from time to time as we've gone through Isaiah 53 and heard the voice of God himself speak. That the Father is affected, if we can say that, using human language by what the Son endures in His humanity. We, we saw that as, uh, it was an aside spoken by the Father to the Son in verse 14. As many as were astonished at you. Affected by how you looked. And then He goes on, turning away from the Son to describe His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and His form beyond that of the children of mankind. Do you, feel, do you feel the heart of the Father? Well, here you feel the heart of the Father again as he reflects on the anguish of his soul. The ang- out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. There's resurrection implied again. He will be satisfied by the outcome. Well, what is the outcome? Well, the outcome is... What has just been described, he shall see his offspring. 
and shall prolong his days. We ask ourselves, what was it that kept Jesus going? What was it that Jesus had as the outcome? When the Lord Jesus read this before he went to the cross as a young boy and then as a man growing up, and he read Isaiah 53 and realized here is the script of his life written by the Holy Spirit before these events happen. What is it that would have triggered his, what motivates his heart as he goes to the cross? The writer to the Hebrews gives the answer. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. What was the joy set before him? This text and Hebrews gives you the answer. It was the joy of seeing the offspring. The joy of seeing those who would come behind him, following him, trusting in him. Part of his family, his children, the writer to the Hebrews says, bringing many sons to glory. It was because of you, believer. You were what kept him going to the cross. Like the high priest going behind the veil into the Holy of Holies to offer the sacrifice, Jesus approaches the cross as a great high priest in John chapter 17. And just as the high priest has on his shoulder and on his breastplate the names of the tribes of Israel, so the Son of God goes to the cross with the names of his people in his heart and on his shoulder in his heart to love them, on his shoulder to carry them. He takes your name, your identity, who you are. In all that he knows about you, he takes you as an individual and he takes you with him to the cross and for the joy set before him of your salvation and your glory and your resurrection life. He endures the cross and despises its shame. Jesus is not disappointed. Not disappointed in what he sees. He will be satisfied. And we are not disappointed. Look at the benefits he passes on To the people, do you hear the Father's pleasure, good pleasure, as he records what his Son has achieved? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. You see how the Father again draws our attention, as he's done right at the very beginning of this song in chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant. Now again, he's turning our attention. He is the Father speaking of the servant, the righteous one. He underlines that. That isn't Israel. That isn't you. It isn't me. Here's God's verdict on you, me, and everyone else. There is none righteous, no, not one. But this is God's verdict on the servant. He is the righteous one. In every possible way it's possible to be right with God, he is right with God. And he's dying in the place of those who are not right with God. But his death in the place of those who are not right with God results in what? Declaring us to be right with God. You see that? You see the flow of the passage? The righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous. What does that mean? Does that just mean that you have the charges dropped against you? No. Justice would not be satisfied that way. 
doesn't mean that God just kind of uh, eliminates your indebtedness. He says, oh, right, we'll, we'll, we'll settle that, we'll forgive that debt, and now you're back to square one again. It's not that. This is, on a, pos- this is a positive form of accounting here. This is, this is not only the Son of God, as it were, paying our debt, that's the penalty that he endured, but he is filling up our account with his perfect righteousness. You see, what what happens when Jesus dies is this. Because my sinless Savior died, my guilty soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look at him and pardon me. That's the heart of the gospel. That's what it means to be a child of God. It's to know that the one who bore my iniquities took the punishment for my iniquities. It's to know that the one who bore my iniquities was already qualified because he was the righteous one. And he did that for the many. That's a phrase that comes up there in verse verse, uh, 11. He will make many to be accounted righteous. He will divide a portion with the many. And he bore the sin of many, verse 12. The many. Jesus picks up that word, the many, from Isaiah here. And he uses it himself. He says, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul uses the same language in Romans chapter 5, verse 15. If many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Or he sets up the two figures, the two great leaders of the human race, Adam and Jesus. And he says, if by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's what Jesus does. He gives a status of righteousness, a right standing with God to those who believe in Jesus. You don't contribute anything to this scenario, by the way. You don't have savings that might help to pay that debt. You're totally in debt. We have nothing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Well, the servant's death is no disappointment. Look at this. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. This translation is all over the place here. Here's what it is literally. I will allot to him the many. I will allot to him the many. In other words, I'm going to give the many for whom he died to him. They're his. Remember Jesus prays, Father, I pray for those that you have given me. For they are yours and you gave them to me. And for their sakes, I consecrate myself. That is, dedicate myself as an offering, as a sacrifice for them. These are the people for whom he died. 
I will allot to him the many. And I will allot to him the strong as booty. They are his prize from, from the battle. His people. That's what he wants. That's what he's looking forward to. And that's all his. The many are his because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many. And he now makes present tense intercession for the transgressors. So get this flow. Perfect substitution plus perfect sin-bearing equals perfect righteousness before God, right standing before God. And he let himself be numbered with the rebels in order that he might make intercession for us. That's what he's doing right now. What that's saying is this. Not that Jesus has to come to his father every day and say, Father, 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 I plead for these people. No, no. His presence with the Father. The wounds in his hands and feet and side and brow are the perpetual reminder in the presence of the Father and of the cherubim and the seraphim and the angels and the archangels and the demons of hell and Satan and all the cosmic powers. They are the demonstration to the universe of the righteousness of God's justice in justifying unjust and unrighteous people like you and me. He is our intercession. He ever lives to make intercession for us. His everlasting presence before God guarantees our everlasting salvation in the presence of God. For the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. There's the reality of what our Lord Jesus achieved. Now, what Jesus did was forbidden to one other great character in the Bible, Moses. Moses had been off talking with God Children of Israel had broken out some old gold and formed them into a golden calf. We're engaging in orgiastic worship of a golden calf. The prophet comes down, sees what's happening, knows that there's going to be a period of awful judgment the next day. And he says to the people, that's what's coming, but perhaps I can make atonement. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses goes back to to God and he prays to God and he says to God alas your people have sinned a great sin and they've made for themselves gods of gold but now if you will forgive their sins please blot me out of the book Moses was not saying blot me out with them he was saying to God please blot me out for them instead of them and forgive them and God effectively says to Moses, wrong time and wrong person, Moses. I'm going to do that one day. But you're not the person and this isn't the time. In Isaiah 53, we discover who the right time, when the right time was and who the right person is. 
It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now I ask you this morning, do you believe this? Is this what your hopes of heaven are built on? Is it this message this morning that articulates for you your confidence in where you will be 10 billion years from today? That's where my confidence lies. Right here. You want to know the heart of the gospel I love? This is it. It doesn't get better than this. It doesn't get better than this Savior. This Savior. Our Savior. Our dear Savior. Taking our place. Bearing our sin. Enduring our penalty. Rising. And seeing us. I look across this room, I see people who know the Lord Jesus, and I think the Lord Jesus had you in mind when he went to that cross. You were on his heart. Do you know how much you are loved, brother and sister? Do you know how much you are loved by your heavenly Father? Do you know how much you are loved by your Savior? Do you have any idea what his presence before the throne of God above right now means day by day for you in your life? You are the most loved people in the universe. And it's going to take those billions of years for us to come to terms with it. And perhaps we never will. We will never cease to be lost in wonder, love, and praise. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that this morning, by the grace of God, the good news of this gospel would overcome all of our fears, all of our frustrations, all of our anger, all of our uncertainty, all of our angst, shame, overcome all the things that irritate us in our daily life, Overcome it all. We have heard something this morning that is of far greater importance to the world than any topic of discussion in this general election year. People's hopes of heaven depend on this. This is what the people in ISIS need to hear, the good news of Christ. This is what our fellow countrymen need to hear, the good news of Jesus. And we, your people, need to hear the good news of Jesus because this is where the heart of it lies. Refresh us, we pray, by your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.